And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, world. Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Maggie. Hello, I am Harmony. Maggie is tired today because I have her up at the butt crack of dawn. That's okay. <laughs> you know, we're just, we're in a new situation, a new scenario. It's all good. It's especially all good because we're doing bite-sized bits this week. Yay! We are! Yay! So we were originally going to do If You Leave Me, but that is going to happen next week, I promise. We're recording with a friend of mine who is actually in Korea, and I think her insight is going to be important for this novel. Yeah, Korean time is a lot different than U.S. time, so that's coming at you next week. Time's over hard. Yeah, (laughs) it is super hard. What are we reading this week? We're reading a short story called As I Stand Here Ironing by Tilly Olson which is a short story about a woman who is ironing someone's clothes, reflecting on the life that she gave her oldest daughter after getting a call from another sort of nameless someone who we never really find out about saying that said daughter needs help and that the mother like needs to come in so that the daughter can get help, etc. And it just kind of triggers this like monologue from the mother as she sort of reflects on her daughter and their relationship and the life that she was able to give her which was much different than her four younger siblings just given like the circumstances that she was born in during the depression and all that good stuff so the two sort of themes i would say that we're kind of centering on for this episode are the idea of privilege and the choice that comes with having privilege and identity because a lot of this is like based on the mother sort of questioning who she is and who her daughter is, especially in relation to each other. And it's a very moving story. It's super well written. It is. It made me cry. So I know you said earlier that you kind of chose this on a whim, but this is our 1960s short story. Mm -hmm. And what made this story stand out to you? Well, it was actually so like the 60s are super famous for second wave feminism, right? So I was initially really trying to find something to do with that but Mm -hmm. second wave feminism really didn't kick off with the bang that we think of it until 1963 and I was really trying to um keep it closer to 1960 so this story was published I believe right at the very very beginning of 1961 um but I decided that it passed anyways so like (laughs) this story is sort of on the cusp of like right before second wave feminism is happening, which I think is really interesting. And also Mm -hmm. I had never heard of Tilly Olson before. And I think part of that is because that she's actually a Jewish American writer and a lot of Jewish writers don't get the same um, sort of revere and treatment as a lot of other Caucasian authors do in the United States. I think especially in, you know, the early 60s when this story especially is 
based after sort of a lot of the aftershocks of the Second World War and things like that. So I kind of just wanted to bring in a different voice to this whole sort of scenario. And that's why I ended up choosing it ultimately. And also, to be honest with you, I I did a lot of research on it and I just really wasn't that interested in a lot of the other stuff that was being written. And this one just seemed very like it had themes that really just struck I think with feminism and what we were talking about I don't know if it's necessarily like an inherently feminist story but it's so woman-centered and so based on like this woman trying to figure out who she is that it just really felt like a good fit but as you were joking about before I kind of want to start with the piece about identity I think just because I think that in relation to the idea of privilege and choice, it's kind of a smaller theme. But you were joking earlier about how we've accidentally turned May into Mother's Month. And you had a question (laughs) that was about how come so many um, books or like women's issues are based around motherhood. So I kind of wanted to start there if you have any thoughts on that. Okay, yeah, I definitely do. So I didn't research uh, much before this episode. But you were mentioning second wave feminism. And my understanding of second wave feminism is that it's kind of the middle class white ladies feminism. Um, And in that in that whole genre, a lot of what was going on and what was being talked about politically had to do with motherhood and careers and um, child care and things like that. And I mean, even before that, when we were talking about like the suffragettes and stuff, feminism was really focused and came about as a way for women to have more, I mean, not entirely, but in part, like it, it became popular because women needed some sort of agency over their families and household. A lot of the people who were against, who wanted to ban alcohol, essentially, were also a part of the suffragette movement. And that's a part of how women gained agency because women did not have any agency over their households or their funds and men were going out and spending their money on alcohol. So it was interesting to me looking at this story, especially through a feminist lens, because the entire story is wrapped up in in privilege and in how how motherhood works, essentially. And like, how our lot like how limited we are in in our current society and this isn't even our current society this is world war ii era okay this is the story takes place in world war ii era and this woman is just so very limited in her society to be the mother she wants to be to her firstborn daughter and so yeah like if if we had different policies that cared about women um she would have had free childcare and she would have been the mother. She would have had child support. She would have been the mother that she wanted to be to her daughter. Yeah. And I also, I feel like a couple episodes ago, well, I guess let me back up before I, <laughs> before I riff off that point. Yeah, I agree. I think that so many women's issues are about motherhood because for so long, all women could be was a mother. So I think that for a long time, a lot of the feminist movement centered on the fact that like, because of the limitations of society, like, well, if we have to be mothers, let's at least fight to be the best, you know, mothers and wives we can be. And of course, there were women who broke that mold and stuff. But like, by and large, for your average Joe lady, like this was what was up. And I think that something that was interesting about second wave feminism was that it did focus on careers more, and sort Mm -hmm. of was able to crack that open. 
Um, but you're right that it was a very middle class white thing. Um, to, even to the point where I already know what we're, we're talking about for 1980 and it's Alice Walker's total like criticism of second wave feminism. Um, but that's for a couple of months from now. <laughs> and I think that this, but I, I think that the middle class aspect of that in the context of this story is especially important because part mm-hmm. of the reason that this mother struggled so much was because she had to work for a living. So her oldest da- daughter was born at the end of the depression. And so this is taking place 19 years after that. So, you know, like late 1950s sort of situation um, reflecting back again on her life. Um, and she didn't have a choice but to work the entire time. So like the idea of having a career and being a mother was never something that she had, you know, really any choice about and things like that. Mm. Whereas the idea of being able to come out and have like have a career and be a mother too was for a lot of middle-class women at the time, like something that was supposed to be empowering because in a a different way, they had a, a different choice to make, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I agree with you that it, a lot of it also boils down to the fact that like, there is no support. Um, we were talking We've been talking a lot about um, Western medicine and its like lack of support for women in different contexts, I think, recently about the idea of um, what's it called? You know, just kind of how more holistic medicine is generally vilified, but also generally lives in a more feminine space. But I think that yeah. a lot of this short story ends up showing the way in which Western medicine disservices women in a different way, like as the receiving end, because a lot of what happened that this mother regrets is that her kid got really really sick when she was young um with the chicken pox they thought and she had to be sent away um and then she never got better and then child services took her away because she never got better because she was sick so she spent more time there and eventually she was able to win her oldest child back because um she didn't get better at the like home that they put her in essentially right um but so like we see western medicine fail the youngest daughter there in the sense of like declaring unfit mothers and whatever with really no basis. But we also see it in smaller ways. So like um, so much of this mother's kind of tension with her daughter starts from birth. And the short story says, I nursed her. They feel that's important nowadays. I nursed all the children, but with her, with all the fierce rigidity of first motherhood, I did like the books then said. Though her cries battered me to trembling and my breast ached with swollenness, I waited till the clock decreed. So like this feeling of, of doubt and sort of trying to follow the rule book to be like that textbook good mother starts with her from essentially the moment her oldest kid is born while she's also, you know, again, struggling to put food on the table and do all of that. So like Western medicine, I think is a sort of secondary aspect of this story but i see it and i think it really ties back to the point that you were making about like the lack of services to help women in really any scenario that isn't the ideal one yes yeah no i get what you're saying um i didn't pick up on the western medicine as much but the services thing definitely stood out to me and it's it was a lot for me because um, last week we just aired a, a, a podcast where I interviewed my mother. So this is like all very fresh in my mind. But a lot of the struggle in this story is single motherhood and not having resources, as we've mentioned. And yeah, it was just like you can feel 
you you talked about her being a guilty mother and you feel for her and that guilt because we place so much as a society like mothers in general we we place so much expectation on mothers to do the best and to be the best and to be everything for their children but you also at the same time even though we're not getting it from Emily's perspective we feel for Emily and how much she lost in comparison to her other siblings. And so, yeah, it was a really emotional read to me and very resonant of like things that went on even in my lifetime, which is insane because this was supposed to take place in World War One in the Great Depression. And I mean, World War Two, World War Two World, 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 World War in the Great Depression. And yeah, it just I don't know. I don't have much more to say about that aspect, I guess. It was just a lot. Yeah, it made me very sad. (laughs) Yeah, it was really hard to read because, like, I think that something that this story does masterfully is that while the mother clearly feels guilty about the way things go, she's also not asking for an apology either. And she's not really offering excuses. Like, she's very much like, this is just how shit was. And I feel really bad about that. And now I kind of don't even know what to do. Like, and I'm looking at my oldest child and I see her blooming. Like, there's this moment of hope at the end of the story. It's the very, very last paragraph. And it says, so all that is in her will not bloom. But in how many does it? There is still enough left to live by. Only help her to know, help make it so there is cause for her to know that she is more than the stress on the ironing board, helpless before the iron. So like, there's this little moment of hope where the where she's like coming to terms with the fact that like, in some ways, she's failed her oldest child, like she's never going to bloom fully. But then also, she's more than what her mother will be. And it's like, the Mm -hmm. only I feel like really glimmer of hope that you see throughout this story. And I thought that it was really masterfully done that the author was able to take such a a look at this without making it seem like the mother, I guess, was trying to hide from the things that she felt bad about or like make excuses to herself or anything. It's very just kind of open and honest and raw in a way that I appreciated. I appreciated that too. So it's kind of like generational transcendence. I do we want to give we didn't give a summary for the story. Listeners will link it to you as well. So you guys can go and read it. But what I took, it's a little vague, but what I took it to mean is that, like, maybe somebody from the school is calling the mom and then she's reflecting on her daughter and why her daughter may be not living up to her fullest potential. And the ironing board thing was interesting. And I didn't know that last paragraph that Maggie just quoted. I didn't know what to make of that. I kind of took it to be, like... We are more than our circumstances and maybe like a nod to feminism in general, like kind of a like women aren't just objects to be ironed out. But I don't know. It Did you read that differently? I read it both ways, I think. I think I saw the moment of hope of generational transcendence, especially because the mother um, really believes in her daughter the entire time. Like talking about the school, um, there's this moment where... Um, when her daughter is younger, she's thought of as being slow and always catching up and stuff. And the mother really disagrees with that, 
saying um, she was not glib or quick in a world where glibness and quickness was easily confused with ability to learn. So like the mother always really believes in Emily throughout this entire thing um, and her abilities. So I think that that was a place where I saw that sort of like transcendence and the idea of like, you don't have to be shackled here to this ironing board like I am. But I agree with you also that it is, definitely a nod to the idea that you aren't just like your circumstances and stuff like that and you can you know go on to do what you want um and I think also something I found interesting about the school calling was that Emily's real talent lies in the fact that she's a super talented performer and comedian which is an extremely unusual career choice, shall we say, for like a young lady mm-hmm. in like late 1950, early 1960, especially the comedy part. So I think a lot of it also, like, I think a lot of this monologue comes from a general defense of the idea of like, my daughter doesn't need help. She's doing what she's good at and she can be anything she wants to be to a certain extent. But I feel like of the layers of what's happening here, that's sort of down, <laughs> down lower, you know? I want to ask... Yes, I agree with you. So here's the thing. In in regards to the comedian thing, she's also talking about, too, like she feels guilt about her daughter's comedic performance because she's not able to do enough with Emily's talent, which I also thought could be could play back into the end where she talks about Emily blooming and not or not being able to bloom because she can't like give Emily everything she needs in order to lean into this talent. And then I also wanted to ask you about, like, our narrator's perspective. Because Emily, it, it seems, has had a hard life. But, like, we're not getting this from Emily's perspective. And so how much of this is just mom guilt? And how much of this is just, like, you wanting to protect your child from the evils of the world? I don't know. What, what did you make of that? You know, I I really thought about that, too. Like... Emily ends up being a reflection of her mother in some ways, I think. But it's hard to say that because that's how her mother sees it, right? Like when she's talking about how her reaction when she was sick and the mother couldn't go to Emily and stuff, like we see Emily through her mother's perspective become a colder and more mercurial child. But I think it's hard to say. It's hard to say whether that's actually Emily, especially because the whole story opens up with this really beautiful metaphor about the idea that like her child is not somebody that she knows intimately anymore she talks about the fact that she's been outside in this world for 19 years now like as soon as she exited her she was suddenly a being with her own identity and sense of purpose and worth and somebody that was ultimately unknowable because of that um which is a really shattering thought process but (laughs) Relating to this, she also talks about the fact that she doesn't have the key to Emily anymore. So I think that there's also a layer to this where it's like, how much of this is just a mother being weighed down with guilt for not understanding her child generally? You know, like, I think it really is hard to say how much of this is Emily's true personality and how much of it is the mom guilt especially because the one time where we see Emily in real time at the end of the story, she's in a really good mood and she's joking with her mother and she's trying to get her to come away from the ironing board and stuff. So it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I think that's why I found identity such an interesting aspect of this is that 
we see the mother struggling with her identity specifically in relation to Emily and the idea that like Emily is a separate and unknowable being from her. Um, even down to the fact that, and it's interesting because we kind of go through this story a little chronologically in terms of Emily's life as she's thinking through, and we don't really see her mother, I think, start to accept Emily as being totally separate, even when they're separated, um, until she's probably like a slightly older child. That's when we get her name is halfway through the story. But prior to that point, she's still just like her oldest daughter, and then something hits in the middle of the story after she's sent away to a home where you're essentially not allowed to possess love where she's Emily. Like that's the turning point where she's a separate being and a separate creature with a separate identity. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Okay. I, my mother last episode, the last episode that we aired said something about like how being a mother teaches you patience because free will always gets in the way. (laughs) And (laughs) And yeah, so I didn't read that this I didn't read this story from that perspective about the idea that this mother is trying to comprehend her daughter's unique identity as being different from her own and not a part of herself. And I wonder why she obsesses about it so much with this daughter versus her other children. And yeah, I don't know. I think we get some hints of that because with her other children, because she was able to, I think she had the choice to be more of the mother that she wanted to be. Um, they talk mm-hmm. about the fact that she's able to stay at home and that she's able to like really like love and nurture them the way that she wants to. I think that she finds them more knowable because she finds herself in that scenario more knowable, right? Like she knew what she wanted. She knew what she was doing. But with the firstborn, they even talk about it with the nursing thing, right? Like the rigidity of first motherhood, right? Like not only do you not know what you're doing because you've never been a mother before, but then on top of this, because you're a Jewish woman, because it's the Great Depression when you've had this baby, because you're 19 when you've had the baby, because of all of these things, like the choices that you have to be the person that you want to be are so limited that I think that there's Mm -hmm. also an aspect where like, she didn't know herself as a person and a mother while she was trying to raise this little being. So like there's a, I think that that potentially plays into it and it ends up being interesting also because it creates a rivalry between Emily and her first youngest sibling, Susan, because Susan Mm -hmm. is everything Emily wants to be in the sense that she's very like traditionally Americanly pretty like blonde bombshell sort of situation. And she's, funny and she's bright and she's like very vibrant and she got Mm -hmm. all of her mother's attention for a really long time and she did all the little sister things they talk about the fact that she takes her stuff she takes her jokes she breaks it sometimes and like it didn't sit well with emily because of that like difference in the way that they were raised even five years apart Okay, so talking about the unreliable narrator again i'm wondering too if the mother is like so obsessed with Emily because Susan ended up being the daughter that she wanted. And also we're talking about too, how the mother had Emily before she was ready. And then, you know, presumably she was ready for all of her other children, but I wonder if it's kind of implied that she didn't get to choose anything in her life, even though she now is the mother she wants to be to these other children Um, And I wonder if that's implied through the ironing board because Emily keeps staring at her and the ironing board and being like, get out away from the ironing board. (laughs) 
No, I think that you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's exactly what's going on here, especially because there's implications that the mother it's implied at first you don't know if she's ironing because she's just like ironing for her family of you know five children i'm, I'm assuming that there's probably a lot of ironing to go on <laughs> in that scenario <laughs> but the longer it goes on the more you get the hint and the more that you hear more about the mother's past and how she struggled to find work the more you kind of understand that this might be her job is like doing this laundering for other people which is like mm-hmm. totally fine necessary needed job but it is very much looked down upon by society as a whole um and it mm-hmm. very much is the kind of job that a woman would take you know at the end of the great depression maybe at the very beginning of the boom of world war Two, when you're really like desperate and i think that that's exactly what it is especially because at the end, when Emily's joking with her mother, she says that her mother's always there. She talks about Whistler painting his mother and saying, if I were to paint you, right, like you would always be behind the ironing board. So I think that's exactly what that metaphor is, is the like lack of choice that this lady has. All What about the... No, I agree. I agree. Okay, good. I'm glad I've been val- validated. And what about the rivalry between Emily and Susan and that being like just the mother's explanation for how she can love both of them because Susan maybe was like Susan was the daughter she wanted. I think it's kind of hard to maybe go that far just because we see at the very beginning that the mother thinks of Emily as being her most beautiful child. She says that she was the only beautiful baby that she had and that all the others were ugly. (laughs) Um, And that Emily something that I thought that was interesting when we talk about like the creation of Emily's identity is that it's really caught up in the idea of beauty as worth. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's something that she apparently talks to her mother throughout her life. as She freaks out that she's like not traditionally beautiful, but her mother thinks she's beautiful. Her mother spends a lot of time throughout her childhood convincing her that she's beautiful and that she'll be a beautiful woman. So I think in that sense, maybe a little bit less. So I think that some of it is, It throws in at the very end, and Harmony and I are both the oldest siblings of siblings that are significantly (laughs) younger than us, so we've both, even throughout different circumstances, like, really lived this. It throws in at the end that Emily, you know, then becomes, you know, part mother, part caregiver, part whatever to all of her youngest siblings. And I think Mm -hmm. that even to a certain extent, like, in the way she sees the relationship between Emily and Susan... We see a lot of that infused mom guilt there because she feels like Emily wasn't able to necessarily have that kind of childhood, you know? Because the thing is, is that the way she describes the rivalry between Emily and Susan really is like typical sibling stuff, right? Like my younger brother is is almost the same exact age gap. And that was how we were, even though like we weren't in any of these circumstances. So I think that that's one of the places where we see mom guilt sort of override maybe what was actually happening you know yeah the brother that is closest to my age is also five years apart and that's that's why I read into that because that jealousy like really sat with me and he's he's like one of my favorite people in the world and even was when I was super jealous of him as a young child so that's part of why I did the mom guilt thing or why I read that into it I also was wondering, as you were speaking, um, Emily is also the only child without a father. I mean, her father is mentioned, but like she he isn't a part of the picture and he doesn't he wasn't really ever a part of her picture. Um, 
And so I wonder, too, if that's why it's so hard to separate the identity, because Emily really is just hers. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. And I think also because Emily had to spend the first, like, a lot of her babyhood and stuff with her father's family and then again gets taken away to go to that crazy home i think that there's a lot of clinging that the mother does to emily like the idea of emily when she's very very small like she even says that while she's with her husband's family you know or i'm sorry not her husband's family the the girl's father's family she thinks about her all the time Mm -hmm. and stuff and all of a sudden when she's two she's almost two when she comes back and she's completely different right like all of that babyhood is left so i think that to a certain extent like the i the difficulty of separation of identity comes from the fact that for so long emily lives just in her mind right like or through short letters and stuff so she builds up an identity a thought a life for her what she probably hopes that she has and then this child comes back every time when she's taken away um through no fault really of either of their own if we're being honest and comes back different and unexpected you know yeah and i i don't have the story up here uh with me but she even says like when she's talking about how emily is the beautiful baby then when she like sees her again and emily's two years old there's a whole part there's like a whole paragraph talking about how emily looks like her father And then she, like, suddenly she's her father's child. And that, too, I think, showcases the separation of identity. Maybe that, too, was why Emily was beautiful to her, because Emily looked probably like her when she was a baby. Like, it was just hers. And then she comes back and she's a separate little being. Yeah, for sure. And I think something else that's interesting going off of that point is... um... The fact that even after she comes back, she has to go to a daycare that she doesn't like. Um, and she has little choice in that either. Like, she doesn't get to choose what daycare she goes to or whether she goes to daycare and all of that stuff. Um, so the more time she spends with strangers, essentially, the less she can understand and identify with her child. And it happened and that like final separation where she's finally called Emily happens through that third bout of sap- of separation. Um mm-hmm. while she's essentially getting treatment for an illness that doesn't work and that she potentially doesn't even really have, you know. Um and I think that the most one of the most heartbreaking lines for me is when she's the mother is talking about the choice or lack of choice to send her to daycare. And she said, except that it would have made no difference if I had known. So like she didn't know that there were other options at, out there at the time. But even if she did, it wouldn't have changed anything. Right. Because she couldn't transcend her class in that in that moment and like what life had offered to her. So it was just I don't know. That line like really shattered my heart. <laughs> I think it's just hard because this mother clearly wants so much for this first child and was unable to give it for a long time. And then what she could give it doesn't know how to. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully, hopefully Emily doesn't harp on it as much as her mom does. (laughs) I think it's also hard to know because something that makes this um, short story feel very realistic to me is that it's very much... um, akin to like a stream of conscience style it's very realistic Mm -hmm. right like you know how you get a phone call hearing something you don't want and then you spend the next like however long monologuing on it 
and then eventually it goes away. I think it's hard to know whether this is something that the mother reflects on often or if a lot of this reflection sparks from this one specific phone call. You know, this monologue is um, difficult to place. It's also hard to know. You don't know if she's speaking out loud, if she's like talking to herself, if there's an audience, if this is all like internal stuff, which I think is interesting as well. I mean, there are times in which things are like there are quotation marks used, but I guess that's probably just to like emphasize that those words aren't coming from her. They're coming from outside forces. Yeah, you you said earlier that she's not excusing herself as a mother and like not excusing herself for not being the mother that she wanted to be, just like stating facts. But in a lot of ways, like what I assume is happening because it is kept vague is she gets a phone call from the school and she's like, through this monologue, excusing her daughter. <laughs> she's like, it's not my daughter's fault. It's my fault. Yeah. Um, yeah. Society's fault. And I, I wanted to know what you thought of that. Like, is it okay for mothers to excuse their children in that way? And why do we do that? I mean, why do people do that? I think that's hard to answer because we don't, we never find out the catalyst for what prompted the phone call. Yeah. We never find out what actually happened. So, like, on the one hand, I think that we shouldn't excuse our children from bad behavior just because they like had not the upbringing that we wanted them to have or whatever right but on the other hand I think it's implied at the end when she's reflecting on Emily doing whatever she's doing and like living her life that like the thing that was called about potentially doesn't even actually matter (laughs) like it's not a big deal so I think it's hard to answer I would say generally speaking I agree that like we probably shouldn't excuse our children just like willy-nilly, right? But I do think that maybe in light of that, I think that there is room to say, well, you might not like this thing she's done, but she hasn't objectively hurt it, hurt, it, ugh, hurt anyone. So like, fuck you. This is just who she is and what she's doing. And that's fine. Yeah. Let my child be who she is. I also think too, like this, this desire that we may have as as mothers or parents um, to excuse our offspring or to want to protect our offspring from all the evils of the world is a part of this identity issue that you were talking about earlier and like not being able to separate it from ourselves because if Emily's doing poorly at something then that's a reflection on her mother and what do we think about like that that is how society kind of views it, right? Like you're a bad mother if your child turned into Ted Bundy. Um so like what what is our perspective on that? On that societal perception, I guess, and then that internal perception. I think it's really difficult because at the end of the day, right? Like your kid is a separate being and is a separate identity and like as much as you can control their circumstances through whatever is in like your means at the time i i'm going back to what you to that quote you said about your mother last week like it teaches you patience because free will gets in the way like your kid is ultimately going to turn out how your kid turns out (laughs) you're going to do the best you can i feel like for for most people who become parents and like in that sense you have a degree of teaching responsibility but like 
your kid is going to be who your kid is. And so I think that in some ways it's really unfair to put all the onus on the parents, especially the mother, and be like, well, your kid did X, so this is your fault. But I also think that that's potentially more of an adulthood problem, um, Mm -hmm. just given the fact that, like, when you're very, very small, right, like two and three years old, for the most part, you really are confined to what is and isn't okay as set out by your parents. But then also... Thinking back to when my sister was two and three, which was the time I remember vividly, like they do whatever the fuck they want anyways. And it's just about like whether they care about the consequences, which isn't even necessarily an indicator on whether the consequences are like good or bad consequences. Like they're just monsters at that age. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, Maggie and I both have like larger ish families with siblings and none of my siblings necessarily lived the same exact life experience that I did. But we're all vastly different people Mm -hmm. for the most part. And I imagine that's true for Maggie, who probably did have like a more steady upbringing in terms of her siblings lives. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely true. The rules were definitely very different for my brother and my sister. But when it comes to like the basic idea of like, we lived in the same house, we all went through the same school district, like, all of that stuff was pretty much the same. I had the same two parents the whole time. Yeah. So that is interesting. We all just kind of like deal with our lot in lives differently. And that's kind of, I guess, what the woman in the piece is saying, too. Like, just let my daughter deal with it the way she wants to deal with it. Yeah, there's definitely a chafing, I think. I think someplace where I see a little bit of vicarious living, almost, is the idea, again, when she's talking about her talent on the stage, but also the fact that she bristles on the idea that her daughter isn't slow, right? Even though she's deemed Mm -hmm. that by the school, like, she bristles at this fact that this school and all of the people who are not her keep trying to put Emily into this little neat box to be like, oh, this child is sick. Oh, this child is weak. Oh, this child needs help. And the mother is just sitting there like, from my perspective, this is a cold, bristly child, but that's pretty much my fault anyways. But like, (laughs) none of the things you're saying about her are true, you know? Yeah. Okay. All right. So what are you, do you have any takeaways? Is there anything else you want to talk about? I think that's something that I found really interesting through this is that the idea that love is almost an object that you can possess. You see that especially while Emily is in the sort of like medical orphanage area sort of situation. Um, Her mother and her write constantly, but Emily is never allowed to keep those letters that are very much imbued with her mother's love. She's only allowed to read them once. And Emily says explicitly, like, this isn't a place where love is something that you are allowed to possess. And I think that that idea is really interesting because we do, I think, societally treat love as a possession, which is weird given the fact that it's not, you know, a tangible object that you can have. And the story really made me think differently about that concept but honestly I don't know if I have any concrete takeaways about it I just think it's worth mentioning because it's a theme that does come up over and over again throughout um, in the sense that concretely for Emily she can't keep those letters right she can't possess her mother's love in that way but I think conversely a lot of this is about the fact that the mother feels like she can't ever truly possess Emily's love Um, and she feels like it's her fault like There's this point where she says, sorry, I'm just looking for my quote. Um, 
What in me demanded that goodness in her? And what was the cost, the cost to her of such goodness? And I think that ultimately we the mother finds that like the cost to her of being so good when she was so small is like this nature that she doesn't understand as an adult, which is kind of cold, kind of mercurial, very like individual, you know, I think that might be the key to all of this almost is that Emily becomes somebody who comforts herself. She's a very self-contained system. She doesn't depend on her mother the way that, her other siblings ostensibly do because she was trained from such a young age to deal with things herself. And I feel like that potentially is really like the core of this identity issue here, potentially. That's very interesting. That's a lot. Okay. That's a lot to unpack. I think too, I think what you, sorry, just came up with that. (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. There's like so many things I want to dive into. So when we're talking about love as a possession, like our society does treat that as a possession in terms of like forced monogamy, jealousy. Um, When we are talking about like romantic love, weddings can sometimes be a very like uh, possessive sort of way. I I don't know. I, I often find myself very uncomfortable with like the the culture surrounding heterosexual relationships sometimes because there's like couple culture and roles that you're supposed to fall into and it feels weird to me but going back for the possession and and relating it to the story I feel like it could also be almost like a capitalistic sort of thing because the mother did not have the resources to love Emily in the way she was able to love all of the rest of the children um which also, like, as a person, relates a lot to me because I grew up with a single mother. <laughs> so, like, reading this, I was kind of, like, thinking back to how I had imagined my mother had felt when I was growing up. Yeah, so love as a possession is definitely really interesting. And the whole idea, like, the whole reason possessiveness and love is dangerous is because we're not allowing people to be themselves and to be individuals and to have freedom. So, yeah, I just think that's a great concept um, that you brought in there. And that's what she's struggling with. She's struggling with the the idea that Emily is her own person and is an individual. And therefore, she is struggling with that possessiveness that, like, Emily should just be hers. But she's not really saying that Emily should just be hers. She's, like, processing it for herself that Emily isn't just hers. And this is why. She doesn't want Emily to be just hers, I think. There's no, like, desire to make her something that she's not. I think there's just a struggle to understand how to serve a child that she doesn't, who, who, who's key to her heart she doesn't have, right? Like, even possession there starts right at the beginning. She doesn't have the key to her heart. Yeah, 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 that's true. And she's like, why would you expect me to? Like, she's just... I'm just the mother. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's her own human. Yeah. I don't know, which is really kind of great in terms of, like, the mother. Like, she really clearly loves Emily and wants her to be herself and her own person. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's all I'm able to articulate. (laughs) I agree. I want... 
excuse me, it really is early here for me to be speaking intelligently so much. I think that the idea that I want to close, so we um, read the story off shortstoryproject.org, which of course we'll link in the description. Um, But with that, there was a really great introduction, like critical introduction to the piece from Ruit Benyakov. And I want to just read a little um, snippet from that introduction really fast, because I think that it also ties into an idea of feminism that we didn't really dive into on the podcast, but I think it makes a great closing thought. So, quote, the story endows the woman, the mother, with the right of speech, and her monologue depicts an often hidden reality and the causes that bring it into being. The mother often wonders what is the value of telling the story? Why does her recollection or the circumstances matter? Why do I put that first? I do not even know if it matters or if it explains anything. Nonetheless, she continues telling of her life of constraints. So I think that that idea that for the mother having this all put into words at the very least, into thoughts at the very least becomes in and of itself an act of like feminism almost right like she's using her voice to articulate what's happening to her and those constraints right like those places where she was forced to make choices she didn't agree with um so i think that i'm going to use that to sort of segue into our closing here which is do you think that this is a feminist story I do. Yeah, I think this is a feminist story. Um, It passes the Bechdel test, which is always my first assessment. (laughs) And I think that it's hard because like the whole point of Rebel Girls Book Club, as we've talked about before, is to talk about women transcending uh, their boundaries. And that's hinted at here, but it's not, um, it doesn't explicitly happen yet. It's hinted at that it could happen for Emily transcending these restraints but i also i didn't read that introduction sorry but i agree with what the author is saying in terms of it being powerful for women and for all people who are oppressed and i mean just people in general like i think it's powerful to voice your own experiences and i think thoughts are powerful and voicing your own thoughts are powerful and so yeah i do believe this is an empowering peace especially from a motherhood perspective especially in the 1960s when we probably weren't hearing enough from mothers about their restraints in terms of raising children yeah (laughs) yeah I agree I didn't know initially when I first picked this like I figured it would have feminine like themes that we could talk about but I didn't know if I was going to ultimately think it was feminist but I think that I do specifically for the fact that it's giving voice to somebody and I think importantly giving voice to somebody who doesn't have any kind of class privilege really somebody who's Jewish so we didn't even really even touch on the like struggles that Emily goes through because she essentially looks Jewish which is hinted at a lot um and is a whole other reading i think but like that's there i think the idea of giving voice and power to that story through not just having the mother think it for herself right but like ultimately writing it down and then publishing it and putting it out there to be like motherhood is not just this like middle class white lady dream that we talk about Mm -hmm. and will eventually push against is ultimately like a feminist act Yeah. I think that sometimes I struggle with deciding when things are feminist because you have to have 
an understanding of what the boundaries are to then understand when they're being pushed. And I think Mm -hmm. that this is a really great piece that showcases the first thing about what the boundaries are and then sneaks in bits of the second thing to show to show where they're being pushed. And I think for me, that's what makes a really great like feminist work, even if it's not necessarily like a celebration of transcending those boundaries. Yes, I agree. That's a good definition. We shall use that in the future, Maggie. I think I think I just cracked <laughs> the code. At least for us in these conversations, it only took us an entire season. All right, yeah, Harmony. You heard it here. Do you have uh, any homework for this episode? My homework. What is my homework? I have not. So since quarantine started, I've really not been writing very much, and um, it's hard as a person who writes for a living. <laughs> to not do that and also to like understand why or wait why not that may be necessary or what's going on um and so I think I'm going to challenge myself just to like write a little bit for myself and and use my voice I don't know maybe it needed a break maybe it was tired what what about you Maggie honestly similarly except for with reading I read a lot in April and then haven't picked up anything in May so like I feel like for me that's a huge part of my voice is not necessarily putting out my own original thoughts but reflecting critically on others um that's like a really important part of my personal identity and who I am and I haven't been doing it I've been letting you know quarantine get me down and while I think it's important to give yourself grace especially in this really intense time I think that for me I need to stop just like wallowing it's been like three weeks like let's pick up a fucking book and go you know no I get that I understand that yeah it's quarantine does weird things like I feel like I don't feel depressed in my day to day but there are a bunch of weird ways I've been um interacting with my life that are abnormal Maggie what are you reading I'm reading If You Leave Me by Crystal Hana Kim, which is the book that we're reading next week. Mm-hmm. We've hinted about already. And I've been slowly working my way through War and Peace by Tolstoy, which has been truly a joy. I fucking love Tolstoy. He's a problematic, problematic fave, but his writing just really does it for me. I am infamous in our group of friends for being like, really a hoe for Russian literature and it just it just keeps going so but this is the first time I've ever read War and Peace so I'm really liking it but yeah I haven't I haven't finished a book yet this month like I'm really we're moving slow (laughs) what about you what are you reading um I've been doing a lot of audiobooking so I've been moving faster but I've been having trouble doing the uh the print the print reading because I need to you know in quarantine times I just kind of need to distract myself as much as possible and so Audiobooking allows me to cook and knit and do all of these other things that help distract my busy mind. So I finished The Rules of Magic, which is the prequel to Practical Magic, and I highly recommend it. I know Practical Magic, the book, is not everyone's fave, and I'm actually audiobooking that right now, so uh, I can see why. But I definitely still recommend The Rules of Magic. I think it is a really good prequel to the Practical Magic movie. And to the Practical Magic book, and it's much improved from the book Practical Magic. You know, it's really funny. So I read Practical Magic maybe two years ago, and I liked it. Like, I thought it was fine, but I've never seen the movie. So, like, I know about this controversy about book to movie, but I have no perspective. I just thought the book was, like, three stars okay. That's kind of how I feel. Like, I'm, I'm halfway through right now, and I don't hate it. It just 
it just doesn't like the movie is such a fantastical like dreamscape and the book is less just it, the the movie just like it, it's very comforting it's a comfort movie you know it's about like love and romance and it's a uh, romance in a way but it also has a lot of magical elements and like coming together as woman elements that are really comforting to a lot of people and the rules of magic has some of that it's much darker but like it still it it plays into that when it needs to and that's just like it's a nice it yeah i don't know i don't know the book is fine the book the practical magic book is fine thus far it's just it's not quite as well written as the rules of magic and um it's missing a lot of what's lovely about the movie <laughs> i think uh- so from what you've just described, it sounds like it really leans hard into the practical aspect of practical magic. No, there isn't a lot of magic, unfortunately. That's part of it. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, it's a very, it's not a very magical book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the rules of magic is, but it's also like, it's still got a lot of that dark and a lot of those dark undertones and like coming of age. And um, it's just a lovely book, like all around about the human experience, yet still has that same comfort that you get from practical magic. So I'm excited to see the rules of magic HBO show, which will come out someday soon <laughs> after quarantine. <laughs> I've read uh, other books by Alice Hoffman. I really like her as a writer, but I agree that of what I've read and I haven't read the rules of magic specifically. Uh, practical mm-hmm. magic is definitely her weakest. The, her oh, other wow. books, her other books that I've read, which I think were also published later to be fair, were more like four, <laughs> four or five star reads for me. Yeah, that makes sense. She's written a lot. So, I mean, like, it happens. And it obviously was good enough for them to make that fabulous movie. So. (laughs) Now I want to go watch it. Anyways, this has been a diatribe on Practical Magic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, We will be here next week with my friend Elena. And we're going to be talking about If You Leave Me, which is, oh, if we thought this story was heart-wrenching. It's actually a good uh, follow-up to this story, I believe. It is Mother's Month. (laughs) Okay. Anything else? No. We'll talk to you guys next week. Goodbye. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh, all the